Our friends at Joma present COVID-19 vaccines and you, a live stream town hall for women happening this coming Sunday, beginning 8 p.m. It'll feature Dr. Richard Grazi, Dr. Noor Barzev, and Dr. Ellie Carmody Stone. Go to joma.org for information, J-O-W-M-A. Dot org for information. Joma is the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association. And if you go to their website, joma.org, and you click on patient EDU, patient EDU at the top, there's a lot of information about the value of the COVID-19 vaccine and, um, and getting it uh, spread in an appropriate manner throughout our community. And I hope you would go there if, uh, if there's anybody that you know that has questions about the vaccine to learn more and more about it from the information that Joma provides. And we are going to encourage people, continue to encourage people in our community to get the vaccine and spread immunity throughout the community so all of us can get back to what we knew as a normal existence before this pandemic began. We have a special guest with us live via telephone, and it's unlike me to go through a long introduction, but in this case, I think it's appropriate so we know just who we're speaking to on the other end. Uh, it's a pretty serious conversation and one that I hope will, again, encourage people to visit Joma.org and to get more information if they have any doubts, if you have any doubts regarding the COVID-19 vaccine. Dr. Hannah Weinstock-Newberger is with us, a medical oncologist and hematologist who has been a genitourinary uh, oncology team leader at the United States Food and Drug Administration, the FDA since 2017, where she leads a team of oncologists in the review and approval of cancer drugs. She is a BJJ graduate who then graduated with high distinction from the University of Toronto before completing her medical degree at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. She completed her internal medicine residency at Beth Israel, her medical oncology and hematology fellowship at the University of Maryland, then practiced thoracic and genitourinary oncology at the University of Maryland Medical Center, and at the Baltimore Veterans Affair Medical Center, and she remains on staff at the Baltimore VA. Her original oncology, oncology research has been published in peer-reviewed journals like the Journal of Clinical Oncology, Journal of Urology, Clinical Cancer Research, presented at many national meetings from many different organizations and symposia and workshops, serves as the current track leader of the ASCO's GU Oncology Kidney and Bladder Cancer Education Committee on the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network, annual meeting planning committee, and as an FDA observer on the National Cancer Institute NCTN Scientific Steering Committee in the Genitourinary Oncology and has presented for the FDA's Oncologic Drugs Advisory Committee. She's recently been involved in organizing several workshops on clinical trial design and endpoint definition in genitourinary oncology. She's also a founding vice president of the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association, JALMA. This is the type of people that JOMA has is the type of credentials they bring to the table. And she's active in mentorship for those aspiring to careers in medicine. Dr. Hannah Weinstock-Newberger, a pleasure and an honor to welcome you to JM in the AM. Thank you so much. Such an honor to be here this morning. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate that. We hear so much, all of us, uh, you know, regular people hear so much about the FDA. Can you tell me a little bit about what the FDA is and what it does and what you do there at the FDA? Sure, I'm, I'm happy to. So I'm a medical oncologist and hematologist by training, but I do happen to work at the FDA, um, which is, I think, why I was asked to talk a little bit about the agency that I work for. Yep. So um, as you mentioned, I work as a team leader in the Office of Oncologic Diseases, 
And I lead a team of medical oncologists where we review clinical trials in prostate, kidney, and bladder cancer, and we approve new drugs for all of those indications. So the truth is that I really have very little to do with the vaccine approval process. It's done in a different center. But what I can tell you is some of my familiarity with the agency and um, with, you know, the drug approval process and with the type of people that do the work that I do. Um, and I know, you know, there's a very rigorous hiring and vetting process that happens before someone comes on board to work here. <laughs> I can only imagine, my gosh. <laughs> I mean, our lives are in your hands, essentially. Um, and, and, and the FDA mission in general, because we hear so much about it and we, we, we pray that it is, that it is as, uh, as neutral and as active as we read about, uh, tell us about their mission and what you do to ensure and protect public health. Yeah, sure. So, you know, it's something that many of us um, who come to work for the FDA take very seriously. And it's the reason why many of us have chosen a career um, in, you know, a public agency and public service. We do take this charge to protect the public health very seriously. And it's something we really feel as sort of a calling. So, I mean, in terms of the FDA's mission, we protect public health by ensuring safety, efficacy, and security of drugs, devices, and biologic products. And um, as an agency, we're responsible for advancing public health by speeding innovation, making, you know, drugs and medical products more effective, safer, and really by helping the public get accurate and science-based information to use drugs and all sorts of medical products in the proper way to improve their health. So it's really a charge we take very seriously every day. Dr. Hannah Weinstock Newberger with us. Amazing that so many of us hear about the FDA and we don't think about the people who are behind it. And someone this prominent is in our, is in our own community, which is pretty cool. Uh, doctor, can you describe the process? Everyone's talking about this vaccine. That, that's obvious. I don't have to tell you the entire country is focused on it every single day. Can you tell us about the process that a drug or vaccine goes through before it is approved for marketing in the United States? And this is an important question, as you know, because people are skeptical and wonder about the speed with which this vaccine, meaning the vaccine for COVID-19 specifically, came out, etc. Can you describe the rigorous process for us? Yeah, sure. So, you know, any time that a drug company wants to manufacture and sell a drug in the United States, the FDA is authorized by law to evaluate these new drugs before they can be sold. And this really prevents unsafe and ineffective drugs from being marketed, right? Um, But it also provides doctors and patients with information that they need to use medicines wisely. Um, And the way this is done is that all drug companies, before they can sell drugs in the United States, need to test these drugs and send the information from these tests to the FDA to review and really look at the data in order to decide that a drug is safe. And that's when um, my team comes in, which is a team of physicians, statisticians, chemists, you name it, and we review the data, we review the labeling, and what this does is establish a really independent and unbiased review to state that, you know, the drug's health benefits outweigh its risks. 
And that's when a drug can be approved for sale and marketing in the U.S. So it's really um, a layer of oversight, a really important layer of oversight to know that when someone's selling a drug, it's safe and it does what it says it's going to do. Yeah, and it doesn't do what what many people claim it might do. And I'm, when I say that, I'm talking about you know unusual yeah. unusual side effects, etc. Uh, Dr. Hanna Weinstock Newberger is with us. Um, so literally, our lives are in your hands. Um, We've heard the term emergency use authorization a lot. President Trump used it a lot. President Biden has used it. We've heard the term a lot. And I think psychologically to the regular average person, it sounds like when you hear those words that things are being rushed. And I think it's unfair to portray it that way. Could you tell us the accurate description of what an emergency use authorization is? So first of all, um, I think what you're saying is um, certainly reflecting what people, um, you know, may be saying or or, um, discussing um, when they hear the term. But to really get an accurate sense of what an emergency use authorization is, I really do urge people to go to the FDA.gov website. Mm. There's a lot of information about the regulatory um, processes behind emergency use authorization, et cetera. But really what an emergency use authorization allows is when there's a really um, grave public health emergency, there's a mechanism by which we can facilitate availability as soon as possible of something like a COVID vaccine, which can be done in a way that the public can trust and have confidence in receiving. So the emergency use authorization is really just a mechanism to facilitate availability and use of vaccines, et cetera, during public health emergencies. And um, under an EUA, the FDA still does very rigorous review of clinical trials, phase three clinical trials. Um, But this is just a way that this can happen in a somewhat more expedient manner and, you know, if a company feels like there's a situation that justifies it, after discussion with the FDA, they can really start going down this pathway for approval. And um, once submitted, uh, this data really is reviewed in a very rigorous way, and the data is reviewed by an independent committee of experts, and the career physicians and scientists who work at the FDA then have to evaluate all the the clinical trial data, et cetera, that's submitted and look at the risks and benefit like we do for any other drug. Um, And that's when the um, decision to approve is made. But I I do want to say that the vaccines are really rigorously tested. You know, these um, are the COVID-19 vaccine trials uh, are evaluated in thousands of study participants. And, you know, this really is how the data is generated in order to um, really provide the uh, backing for the approval. And and I, I want to add, and, and I'm, I'm just making clear to the audience that because of your position at the FDA, the boundaries of this conversation have been very, very clearly set. So if I ask something that you don't want to answer, saying to us that you won't answer it is totally legitimate. <laughs> but uh, and I mean that, and uh, and 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 no worries at all. But I think it's so important. There are thousands of people listening right now, and I think it's important 
to convey to everybody who's listening that even though this was an EUA, even though this was an emergency use authorization, so much of the research, so many of these steps in retrospect, I don't want to put words in your mouth, so you can either, again, tell me I'm right or you don't want to discuss it, but so much of what went into this COVID-19 vaccine was done for years, some might even say for decades, before this pandemic even even you know hit us on this globe. Would that be an accurate way of portraying it? Well, you know, certainly any advance in medicine comes on the um, shoulders of a lot of um, many, many hard work, many, many years of hard work um, and just basic science and drug development, vaccine development. So, again, while I'm not a vaccine reviewer and I can't comment on the specifics, um, you know, in the scientific process behind the drug development, um, I, I do think that there was a lot of um, prior um, development in this area. And again, the clinical trials were phase three clinical trials that really did evaluate tens of thousands of patients. So there really is a lot of rigor behind this. Yeah. And you mentioned a moment ago just how rigorously tested these COVID-19 vaccines are. And you you did say you use the word thousands in terms of the number of people that are included in these tests and trials etc. Would it be appropriate for me, and again, this is just to encourage people in this audience to get vaccinated. I've mentioned a million times that that I've already been, quote-unquote, double vaccinated with the Pfizer vaccine. Would it be appropriate to discuss... I'm sorry? Great. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Yeah, I've been vaccinated. My husband's been vaccinated. We're all... uh, There you you go. As soon as we can, I think that's that's been the limiting factor, is trying to get an appointment. Um, But... I would encourage everybody to try to go ahead and do so. And, and finally, uh, again, you know, a lot of people are skeptical about a lot of things. Um, it, it, how can you explain uh, if there is any relationship between an FDA employee and, for example, a pharmaceutical company? You know, people are, are curious, skeptical, use whatever word you want, uh, about what effect um, uh, the FDA or pressure the FDA might be under when it comes to the pressure that pharmaceutical companies might be able to place on them. What can you tell us about this relationship between the FDA and pharmaceutical companies? Yeah, thank you. That's a great question, and I'm really happy to talk about this because it comes up a lot. So, uh, you know, this because this applies to me and my colleagues um, who approve cancer drugs just as much as it applies to any FDA employee. So we all have extremely rigorous ethical standards that forbid us from profiting at all from anything that's regulated by the FDA. So not even what we personally are involved with, but as an FDA employee, I can't profit from anything, um, any food, drugs, tobacco, et cetera, that's regulated by the FDA. I need to report all of my external investments. Um, I can't own any shares in a drug company. All of these are scrutinized and reviewed to make sure there are no waste for me to profit from any of the work that I do or that anyone does at the FDA. And this is true for all employees. We can face jail time. We can face fines if we violate these ethical guidelines. And, you know, these are very clearly stated. We, we go through training often. So this is, you know, something that is very um, important and, and just very known and emphasized within the agency. So I can assure you that the oversight into the independence and accountability of all FDA employees is absolutely 
there and, and really protected. So we're working for public health and safety without any ability of profit personally, and we're working totally independently. And for many of us, like I said, it's really a calling and really something we feel is a way to help many, many people, you know, um, in a very impactful way. The uh, the so, way the way I would put it is that there's a lot of gray area when it comes to the way pharmaceutical companies deal with a lot of different things in this country. But it seems when it comes to the FDA pharmaceutical companies relationship, it ain't, it ain't no gray area. <laughs> the rule oh, no. the rules it's, are it's very clear. Extremely black and white, <laughs> right, you know, exactly. and, and there's absolutely no profit on our part. So I, I definitely, if there's one thing that anyone takes away from this interview, it's that you know the complete independence and the absence of any kind of profit um, on our part um, or any kind of um, payback or, or any of those things that I've, I've heard people ask about. I mean, there, there, is, there are real consequences if anyone were ever to contemplate anything like that. It's just, um, you know, really, really not, um, not allowable um, ethically. Information about all of this directed specifically to our community, go to joma.org, J-O-W-M-A.org. At the top, there's a tab that says patient EDU. It's a great place to start in terms of uh, finding out more and more about the COVID-19 vaccine and how it relates to our community and a lot of the different you know stories, rumors, and, and uh, skepticism that goes on in our community. In all seriousness, I mean, outside of your role with the FDA for a moment, I mean, it, we were introduced to Joma a few weeks ago. I think you know that, and we've been using them as a tremendous uh, resource and vehicle to get the word out uh, to all of our listeners. Uh, I mean, they have attracted um, a, a lot of um, a lot of very, very qualified medical personnel. I mean, your your resume is impressive to say the least, and you're a founding vice president of the Jewish Orthodox Women's. Medical Association. Uh, what is it about the organization? I know I'm asking you this, you know, off the cuff. This is not something that we asked you to prepare, but what is it about Joma that attracts people with the qualifications that are similar to yours? Well, thank you. That's very kind. Um, I think it really is an organization that has tapped into an unmet need on a lot of levels. Um, there's a lot of us who've come through the, the medical training system who didn't necessarily have the resources um, in terms of uh, peer support, mentorship, and all of that. So I think that was the original principle on which Jomo was founded that really attracted a lot of us, certainly um, excited me um, from Jomo's inception. Um, in addition to giving back to the community, I think that's a really important part as well. But you know, coming as a BCAFO graduate and wanting to pursue a medical career, there was uh, very little um, for me that I had available um, to sort of give me career advice and kind of get me through the training. Um, I did have excellent mentorship. I was very, very fortunate to have um, a woman by the name of Dr. Ellen Warner, who's a medical oncologist in Toronto where I grew up, who really... uh, did all of that for me, not through an organization, but the fact that there's a, an organized way to do this now, I think really resonated with a lot of us. Unbelievable. Really nice. Well, I'll ask you to uh, thank those who, uh, because you deal because you deal with them, uh, to thank those who are on the front lines of this vaccine research, because frankly, if not for this vaccine, it would take a lot, lot longer to get people back to, to the normal times that we remember. 
And the fact that a year later, because you remember what it was like in April of 2020, especially in our community, it was a it was a down and disastrous and tragic uh, month of April uh, one year ago. Oh, yeah. And one year later, never, yeah, I'm sorry. I'll, I'll never forget the uh, TED that came out the week after Pesach. It was just. Yeah, it was horrible. A lot of a um, lot so, of obituaries, a lot of obituaries yeah. and remembrances, uh, and and look at us a year later. We may not be where we want, uh, as as most of my listeners know. I'm dying to get to Israel already and start traveling again, <laughs> but so we may not be exactly where we want. But the difference between last Yontif Pesach five seven eighty and the Pesach five seven eight one a vast difference. And one of the reasons is you and your colleagues. So I'll say thank you very much. Well, thank you very much, and thank you so much. It's really been an honor um, to be part of your program. And again, FDA.gov is a website that hopefully can answer a lot of questions. Appreciate that, and really an honor to uh, meet you in this forum. Uh, Dr. Hannah Weinstock Newberger, uh, FDA.gov uh, is the uh, the website she just recommended. We're also going to recommend, of course, JOMA.org. JOMA is the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association. JOMA.org. If you go to Patient EDU. If you go to Patient EDU at the top of the page, a whole bunch of resources there. Also, remember that there's a special Joma Town Hall with Dr. Grazi, Dr. Naor Barzev, and Dr. Ellie Carmody Stone coming up this Sunday, April the 11th, starting at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. And that town hall is a live stream town hall for women, COVID-19 vaccines, and you. Information on the website, joma.org slash COVID-19, joma.org slash COVID-19. More coming up. It is a, what is today? Tuesday morning edition of JM in the AM.